Welcome to Cultural Technologies, Dialogues on Media, Art, and Science. Many years ago, I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship to spend a few years in France. I wrote up a grant proposal, as one normally does. I explained that I was a scholar of media, and uh, I wanted to spend a couple of years studying French philosophy. And when I had my interview with uh, the reviewers looking at my application, one of them, I think it was a sociologist, he looked over my application and he turned to me and he said, oh, I see you're in media studies. You know what they say about media studies. It's uh, anthropology without people. He didn't explain any further, but I think it probably was not a compliment. In any case, today's uh, two guests, I think we could say, are practicing a kind of media studies without people. And in this case, uh, that's a strong compliment. Our conversation today will focus on media and animals. We'll be asking questions like, is it possible to write a history of media where neither humans nor technologies are at the center of the story? Another question would be, does the attempt to understand animals with media or media as a kind of animal change the way we think about media, animals, or humans? Two guests are here today to guide us through these questions. One of them is Etienne Benson. He's an environmental historian and a historian of science. He works at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. He'll talk to us about his recent book, Wired Wilderness, Technologies of Tracing and the Making of Modern Wildlife, which is available from the Johns Hopkins Press. Also on hand is Yusi Parika, a Finnish media theorist, a media theorist who happens to be Finnish, is maybe a better way of putting mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, he's at Winchester School of Art and uh, at the University of Southampton, and he's the author of Insect Media, an Archaeology of Animals and Technologies, which is available from the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. So, um, why don't we start by getting a, or, an overview of your books? Um, so, Etienne, uh, your book Wired Wilderness, which came out pretty recently, 2011. Uh, Late 2010. Late 2010. Uh, It tells the history of efforts by wildlife biologists to track animals in the wild, um, particularly since the 1950s. Um, And this technical and scientific story also seems to be a kind of history of how the way in which nature or wildlife is understood changed um, according to media and technological instrumentation. So as I read your book, it seemed part of the story is that in the 1950s, um, the attempt to use electronic devices to track animals' movements in the wild was in part a story about scientists uh, eavesdropping on nature, um, seeing how animals are in their native habitat. Uh, But in the course of your book, um, the story seems to change such that by the 1990s, uh, these technologies that gave a privileged access to the scientists um, almost became sort of repurposed um, because they were being used to enable um, school children to study and watch animals moving. Um, and you had the feeling almost like there was a kind of reality TV show as larger and larger audiences got access to data that was sort of generated for a different purpose, perhaps, at the beginning. Um, Can you start maybe by saying why you wanted to tell this kind of a story um, or this particular story and how you think the electronic monitoring of animals has changed the way that we understand wildlife? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, maybe it would help for me to say something about how I got into the project and how my understanding of the project changed as I went through it. When I started, I was an unreconstructed Latourian from the era of lab life and science in action. And what I really wanted to do was talk about what to me seemed like an extremely curious set of instrumental affective epistemological relationships that were taking place in modern wildlife biology. Um, you know, the, the, the closer I had an interest starting out with, um, with ecology, with environmentalism, and the more closely I looked at wildlife managers and wildlife biologists and what their work looked like, the more I realized how central this one set of technologies was. And it was a technology of things like radio collars, radio tags, and a variety of other technologies for keeping track of individual wild animals. And so I wanted to understand what was, what was happening in the field at that moment when a wildlife biologist is attaching a collar uh, to an anesthetized animal or is standing in the woods with a, a radio receiver rotating around and listening for the beep. Mm-hmm. Right, of a of a tagged animal, but the the more so, and there, there's still a lot of that that approach, that desire to understand that that sort of phenomenological moment, and also the logistics and everyday material culture of of sort of late 20th century wildlife biology. Right, and just so the idea is, so there's an initial point just trying to figure out what happens when these instruments enter the wild. Is so, well, to understand how a certain set of instrumentation mm-hmm. and a certain set of sort of technical practices produce a certain object of study and a certain set of questions about that object. So one, one of the th- ways I've described this and other things that I've written is that if you go back a little earlier, to the, especially to the 1920s and 1930s, there's the emergence of a group of professionals in the U.S. and elsewhere called wildlife managers, and their goal is to produce something called manageable wildlife. Mm-hmm. Right? And to do that, they assemble a whole set armamentarium of techniques to do that. And so during the period I looked at was when that story which had its origins during the interwar period suddenly arms itself up and mm-hmm. I think maybe this is something we can get back to later the subject of military influences on technology and on science they arm themselves up with a whole new set of, of, of techniques technologies um, to create manageable wildlife and that and that's part of what I wanted to understand the more I got into it the more I started to feel like this wasn't just a story about how scientists produce knowledge or how they scientists produce their objects of study in the field. It was also about a, really about a very specific historical moment, this moment from the 50s to the 90s and perhaps beyond, but, but with that being the core of the story. Um, and what to me was seemed like a pretty clear set of tensions between two approaches to understanding nature and to understanding animals. One of those was very much the managerial approach which said, uh, let's try to build up a sort of yeah, a set of techniques, a set of theories, a set of approaches that will transform this chaotic mess of life mm-hmm. into something that can be managed. It's sort of the biopolitics of, of, of wildlife or of the wild. Mm-hmm. And then in the 60s and 70s, there's also an emergence of something else, a really strong wilderness movement in the U.S., an increasingly strong animal rights movement. And what these movements wanted to do was not to manage nature in all of its details, right, to produce whatever outcome, but to wall it off, to maintain some kind of pristine enclaves, right, whether that's the the autonomy and the freedom and the rights of the individual animal, or whether that is a wilderness area in which man is, quote-unquote, only a visitor, right? So these certainly seemed incompatible in the 60s and 70s, and so a lot of what I do in the book is trace conflicts between these approaches, Um, but then, as you said, things start to shift, I think, 
and maybe the turning point is the 1980s. I don't pinpoint it exactly, but there's certainly a shift if you look from the 50s, 60s to the 80s, 90s, where the sense that these things are really intention starts to fade, or, or people start to become less interested in in the conflict, even if on some logical level but there's it, a conflict. The between, tension between scientific authority and between the, the sort of bio, the sort of biopolitical approach to managing the wild, yeah. the sort of techno scientific rationality on one hand, and then a desire to establish. Uh, enclaves of pristine, autonomous nature, untouched by the human hand, mm-hmm. right? or to reserve those against what seems like the juggernaut of modernity, mm-hmm. coming to crush all remaining yeah. possibilities mm-hmm. of of the, the non-human. Um, and you know what you start seeing emerging in the '90s, and what I touch on at the very end of the book is a, f- a real flourishing of attempts to understand these kinds of technologies not as some sort of domineering, rational, rationalizing sort of uh, framework. Uh, that is going to strip away the last remnants of, of magic from, from nature. But instead to see them actually as productive, creative, connection-building, um, ways of producing new assemblages of humans, animals, technology that might actually produce some kind of a creative mm-hmm. future. Right? And that, to me, is one of the the narratives that runs somewhat under underground in the book, mm-hmm. but, but which is definitely there, this sort of uh, arc. I mean, that was one of the yeah. one of the things that, that struck me is almost actually as like a dominant narrative, maybe relating from my own uh, training. I mean, in the beginning, it really does seem like it's almost like the the technologies they're creating an almost bilateral relationship at the beginning, right? So, in the 1950s, you have scientists who, via these radio technologies, have a particular relationship to the animals moving around. In the wild, right? So there's two or three parties in that almost, if you really simplify it, like the, the scientist, the transmitter, and the animals. But by the end of the story, it's really it's it's, it's sort of crazy because you, you have you have the military, you have legal regimes, you have school children, you have celebrities who have like adopted some of these animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I mean, it did seem like you were telling also a story of something like a I don't know a heterogeneous network of animals and technologies that was just expanding almost limitlessly. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of it is part of the strategy of the book in terms of building up over the chapters different aspects of the story. So by the end, you have in your head that, yeah, there is the field practice side, there's the legal side, there's this Mm -hmm. media in the sort of conventional sense of things showing up in newspapers and on TV shows. All these things are built up over time. But yeah, I think it's also a real thing that happens. By the 90s, for instance, some of the people I talk about, the scientists I talk about, explicitly frame their projects from the very beginning as projects that are intended to enroll mass audiences. And they do that in part because there are changes in the funding structures, changes in what agencies like the National Science Foundation in the U.S. are asking for. Mm-hmm. But the result is that, and, and I think some of the scientists in the 50s and 60s, they had the freedom not to think about that, mm-hmm. the freedom and the risk mm-hmm. not to think about that. So things do change. And just one other thing, I, I probably should have asked you this at the beginning. Um, is it possible to briefly describe... Uh, you know, say one one of these devices from the fifties or sixties, what it looked like, you know, how it worked, what type of animal you'd put it on, and then maybe to compare that to uh, a typical device of today for a similar animal or, or project, just so we can kind of see or feel what we're what you're talking about here. Sure, uh, you know the the transistor is a key player in the story. Mm-hmm. So before transistors become widely available in the 1950s, it's basically impossible to develop a radio transmitter 
that is small enough to be strapped to an animal without significant serious consequences for the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the late 50s, transistors become available. Um, there's this history that I've already talked about of, of experimentation with tags and marking devices that's been going on especially intensively since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so the combination of those technical factors, that, that history, and the availability of a lot of funding, kind of post-Sputnik funding, means that wildlife biologists for the first time are able to actually reach out and, and, and develop some of these techniques. And, and what they look like very concretely, you know, one of the earliest studies was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and uh, involved tracking rabbits using an extremely, extremely simple technology of an oscillator that produced the radio frequency, a battery, and an antenna. And that was it. That's the whole story. It's incredibly simple. And then wrapped with a little co- in a collar, like a dog mm-hmm. collar, and, and strapped around, around the rabbit. There were issues with weight early on that had to do with the efficiency of the batteries and issues with reliability, so transistors were still not particularly reliable. Um, but, and in some ways, the technology has been incredibly conservative. So you want to do a simple radio tracking study of rabbits today, you're going to use essentially the exact same thing that people were using in 1960. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's been an incredible uh, sort of efflorescence of, of more complicated tags. So these days you can get tags that have microprocessors on board, that have GPS receivers on board, that can communicate with satellites, that can record not only the location, not only indicate the location of the animal, but also record a variety of physiological or environmental parameters. So in that sense, and especially, you know, with the internet, with microprocessors, with cellular networks and and satellite networks, you now have tags that can be wired into the sort of global network mm-hmm. from the beginning. And that is a radical change, obviously, mm-hmm. from what was possible in 1960. And so, and are you, you still have a similar thing, like, are, would these look like Walkmans hanging out, off an animal, or are they chips you can install in, inside the body? Typically, you have a collar, which has, um, like, a, a, a box attached to it, a small box attached to it, and that box contains the battery and the electronics, and the collar itself might be the antenna. In other cases, uh, depending on the animal, you might implant something with an antenna either internally or projecting out through the skin. Um, and it just depends. There are harnesses, there are tags that are glued to the heads of seals mm-hmm. because seals, when they break the surface, their head breaks the surface. That allows the radio signal to be transmitted. So there are a lot of varieties. And there's, in fact, an enormous amount of work that's gone into adapting the, the form of the tag to particular different species, all of which have different needs. And maybe, uh, let's try and get a, get a picture of UC's project. Um, mm-hmm. So UC, your book, Insect Media, uh, it examines the history of attempts to understand, I think you could say, technology, insects, and perception mm-hmm. um, in terms of one another. And again, I see this kind of arc in your book, where... You start by examining how in the 19th century, scientists interested in insects uh, frequently likened insects to a kind of, and their life, their, their, their practices to a kind of technology, right? So you can almost see this kind of, you know, scientific modernist drive to explain the insect world, you know, like, mm. well, you know, even now we, we still sort of think as ants as a kind of worker, you know, mm. building their little pyramids. Um, but you show that this... This was one of a whole variety of ways of thinking about animals and insects that, that changed over time. Uh, you also look at the, the biologist Jakob von Uxgel, 
uh, Estonian, right? Mm -hmm. Estonia. Yeah. Who one of the things he was interested in is how um, the perceptions of insects sort of reveal another way of seeing or being in the world, one that's not just bound up in a kind of transcendental, this is what nature is, or this is how man understands the world. But, you know, insects are a way of seeing the world, if we can kind of step inside them. And then your, your story is a, has a number of turns, but to kind of simplify it, uh, you know, you sort of pass through the same period as Etienne after World War II, when new types of information technologies, computers, um, are used to understand animals as information processing devices, as uh, cybernetic instruments, and we could probably end your story, although this isn't the way the book is set up. You know, you get to a point where in the 1990s, people at the Pentagon have almost inverted the paradigm, where they're using insects as a way of explaining how the internet works or how warfare works as a kind of swarming um, uh, practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, can you tell me? If, I mean. I guess I guess part of the question would be is if that if I've given a kind of good summary of the book mm -hmm. and you know why again why is it that you wanted to tell this story and what is this story uh, about all these different constructions and relationships to insects and media and technology what does this tell us about how mm -hmm. the relationship among humans and animals and technologies has maybe changed since the 19th century mm. I think it's a good summary you already gave I think points to really good you know themes that you know that I pick up in the book and in various chapters and and um, basically you know to summarize the way I usually kind of my pitch for the whole book well, let's let's take through two themes uh, first firstly in a way to dry off why to write the book is 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 just a realization or kind of observation quite a general one about the amount to which we make sense of, of you know, contemporary so-called new technologies uh, from robotics um, to social media um, through animal, usually one would say animal metaphors, okay? Uh, and insects feature a lot when talking about new technologies um, and from swarms to um, hive intelligence. So there's a whole, you know, the whole political economy of contemporary digital culture seems to be suddenly about insects and animals mm. and you know the funny combination of high-tech and these um, you know brainless uh, little animals that are suddenly seen as as a kind of perfect reference point for for high-tech but I want, what I want to do is to push back in a way well I've got a, also a historian's background so I was kind of intrigued to see of how it fits in with a much more systematic um, coupling of animals and technology, also on a conceptual level. I think there's a lot of parallels with Etienne's work, but what I did is, is I extended back to the birth of modern entomology, okay? Because you could, you could have gone back to Aristotle and so forth to talk about, you know, the conceptualization and scientific, you know, frameworks through which animals have been, you know, placed as part of the world and knowledge systems. And I just want to focus especially on modern entomology, hence 19th century, okay? And when you start reading entomology texts from 19th century, but you don't read them as entomology only. And just to clarify, so uh, yeah, entomology ent is the term for the study, the science of studying insects. Exactly. Right? Okay. Which, of course, in the 19th century was pretty much kind of just bubbling under science. 
much more of a you know hobbyist amateurs that made huge collections and mm-hmm. slight establishments of that we can talk about that in another context but you know establishing of that as a science but anyway if you start reading that with a different eye you and 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 looking at at what actually are they talking about what kind of worlds are they talking about it suddenly seems to sound like well partly science fiction okay and partly what i would see anachronistically of course media theory i.e different ways of perception of the world different ways of being in the world so to speak uh, uh, and 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 you know whole establishment of an animal perspective to the world this is like you know very much a generalization but but and and but it's interesting to see how this from entomology to uh, popular literature of 19th century even stuff like Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. they're all about these metamorphotic worlds of, of suddenly seeing a bit differently than you see in a normal perception so it's a kind of a verfremdung um, it's a kind of a alienation of the kind of a normal human perspective through you know partly from fiction partly from entomology okay and the story goes that you know from that I, I pick up case studies more or less and look at certain key points in which this link has been made so it's a kind of a minor history of media and technology in a kind of minor in a Deleuze Quatsari way of you know bubbling under themes and and it's slightly um, speculative I'm going to return to that point and but it pops up again for example early 20th century avant-garde avant-garde discourse avant-garde art discourses and in a way perhaps practices as well emerging media technologies like cinema um, I'm thinking about John Epstein. Um, and one key reference point, on the other hand, is cinematic technologies as, again, um, something that is introducing the non-human world, a different kind of mode of perception. And he makes the reference point to world of animals and insects. And there's, again, this kind of coupling of how to see the world differently, how to kind of try to register the world differently uh, from the human perspective. Again, in terms of... Um, capacities of vision but also capacities of movement and capacities of communication and that kind of story I try to in a way make a story but it's a very non-linear one from from as said entomology to avant-garde art and then um, after World War II into just to tap into cybernetics especially Gray Walters the brilliant uh, British British cybernetics and his uh, robotic tortoise which of course not insects so it's not mm-hmm. only about insects uh, uh, into 1980s software culture and and the first kind of computer graphics around swarming and then going into uh, more recent media arts and, and science fiction. That is in a way the kind of a more narrative version of it. The more, in a way in my head, the more philosophical way I thought about it is that this provided me with a way of doing a bit of speculative media archaeology um, that picks up from um, um, certain philosophical themes that have been debated in recent years in, for example, um, 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 certain feminist, feminist contexts, uh, uh, as well as media art contexts, and of course the discourse around post-human and non-human forms of, of, of you know, again, being in the world. Sounds, sounds slightly too Heideggerian, because there's mm-hmm. a very non-Heideggerian twist to my whole thing. And that Basically, it's about trying to use, in a way, the conceptualization of looking at the world, okay, um, through non-humans, mm-hmm. insects and animals, and and seeing what kind of relations to the world emerges. 
and 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 hence it's a kind of a between um there's an empirical side to it again as said being a historian but i want to do a speculative media theory as well i somewhere somewhere jokingly call it an anti-mcluhan book mm-hmm. where um what if we look at the history of media technologies not starting as extensions of, extensions of man but as extensions of something you know extensions of the animal extensions of the non-human and and see where we end up so that kind of a slightly um perhaps yeah as said speculative methodology is driving the whole project mm-hmm. and um maybe to push that a little, a little yeah further um this is for you see but maybe maybe it would apply to etienne's project as well and one of the things you you come i think one comes away from your book inside media with the impression that uh right when somehow when we try to dislocate this you know, some kind of familiar human way of looking at the world. Um, on the one hand, animals and technology, they both seem like these powerful resources, you know, and maybe modern resources because we're not talking about angels or, you know, some mm. some, some supernatural figure. Um, they're these powerful things in the world that are really privileged both for, uh, your story seems to say, for seeing the world, but also for explaining one another, right? So that, you know, one has this question, why is it that one is so often explaining insects in particular um, as, you know, through technological metaphors or technical metaphors? Right. And, you know, vice versa, you know, you could also say, why is it that today um, a roboticist like Rodney Brooks yeah. is saying insects are the key to explaining technology? I don't know if it's, maybe it's, maybe there's no answer to this, but is there some way of, do you have any idea of why these two modes are so important, both for thinking about seeing the world in a different way or just explaining one another? Um, that's good, because that gives us a way to think about what does this mean outside metaphorics. That's why I like your kind of a um, um, Latourian project as well, Etienne, of, you know, because that gives also us a way to think about the more concrete, scientific, you know, assembling of these heterogeneous actors and, you know, making making nature speak in the ocean map uh, in a different way. For me, um, yeah, how to, in- I mean, the, the important thing for me was to insist of, of what is the institutional almost. It's not always articulated, but I think there's a whole material history of the translation of insects and what could be called animal energies as part of modernity that you hence it as. If I would be a much more Marxist person, I would talk about, you know, um, how it relates to certain tapping into nature as a resource for modernization and industrial projects. Um, because I'm a slightly more media theorist, I, hit, I point towards um, um, these processes of mapping perceptional thresholds, which was a key thing of 19th century and, you know, much light in, in histories of technology, um, but also media theory. That, for example, Jonathan Crary really well tapped into in his uh, suspensions of perception, pointing out how 19th century laboratory practices, physiological experimental psychology, mapping human thresholds of perception was instrumental into emergence of, of um, modern technological culture and cinematic culture. What I'm trying to push is that this measurement of, of animal bodies, whether human or animals, actually we can account for the animal as well. 
and that was of course done. If you look at you know German practices, nineteenth century, they're not just mapping how we hear, how we see, and all that. Helen Holtz's and others, but they're actually doing that with animals as well. So again, I've tried to push strategically that animal point. That's just to kind of uh, extend certain human centeredness. It's not about dismissing the human as and the mapping of the human as crucial for the emergence of, of, let's say, cinematic and modern technologies and hence its relation to uh, um, certain industrial mode of, of what now would be called post fordist media culture, but there, 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 that there's, a, there's a raw, well, not raw, but animal energy at the centre of it. So this is interesting. Obviously, of course, when we come to more recent decades, um, there's an informational push as well of, again, um, modern computer graphics having to do with certain swarming models. Um, I've referred to Greg Reynolds' Boyd, which was a key 1980s, very simple algorithm of how to animate semi-autonomous, very simple, um, well, swarming formations or flocks. Um, that's a kind of informational translation that picks up from what would seem, you know, sciences of, of, of um, social organization of insects and transforms that into modern computer graphics and its relation to modern forms of production of you know, consumer products, as in concretely Hollywood films. These are slightly you know, very quick points that I'm making, but you can track these in a very kind of meticulous way as well. And you, can, you could do a very institutional history of these as well, if you're looking at certain key places by the 1980s where computer graphics were done, or then, you know, obviously 19th century and laboratories. And, and, and I think for me, I mean, the way you, Etienne, uh, tie that, well, your idea about this, this double bind between technologies that make, not perhaps speak, but I don't know, you know, concretely visible, but also monitorable in a different way. Wildness, that's not any more wild in any kind of a sense that we usually think about it or actually constitutes a wildness. There's a kind of, again, I like the, the material twist to it. And, and I can see that as a, in a way, Latourian project. And in a way, I'm in my background as well, it's a bubbling under Latour. Not only that, I'm not trying to push you to that because you said that you, I think you moved, moved different direction from that tool, but you know, I like the ontological points as well there. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, just to turn, out, mm-hmm. turn that around, I mean, one of the things that I like about what you're doing is exactly this emphasis on pushing the boundaries of, I mean, this is one of the things that you get by focusing on animals, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, on insects, mm-hmm. and not just on animals in general, mm-hmm. is that with insects, there is such creativity yeah. in the insect world and such variation from what we understand to be the standard human set of perceptions or behavior. social yeah. relations or behavior. Um, and I think that that, yeah, and to me, so to me that seems like a, a crucial point and, and, and a really interesting way to connect the media technology side to the animal side is that one of the things that media technologies are doing is often challenging what we understand to be standard, ordinary, acceptable ways of relating to, to other human beings. And so, I, I, you know, um, my, my focus has often, has not, has stayed with the animals that are often called charismatic megafauna, right, mm-hmm. which are animals that Huge. are, they're, they're big <laughs> animals, they're on our scale, yeah. uh, or bigger, and oftentimes they become uh, such a, a center, a sort of nexus of concern, because 
they seem to echo mm. things that we value in human mm. you know, social relations yeah. or, or what have you. Take killer whales, for example. Killer whales have little groups. They have dialects within their particular you know, regional populations. They have families. Right? And, so, and of course, there are differences and real serious significant differences between the way those families and groups and clans and so forth work compared to the way they do in with with humans, but um, but there are, there are enough resonances there that they become very easy for people to latch onto, I think, um, mm. and and so I think it's really exciting to have people like you pushing the bounds into realms of animal life that are less so much more alien, so less so yeah, much less cute. Exactly. exactly. You're talking about killer whales. I'm talking about praying mantises who, after mating, eat the eat the partner, <laughs> which which you know um, obviously was a big surrealists were all about that, and for them it was a demonstration of, of the vagina dentata, the kind of a swallowing, yeah. eating vagina, and, uh, you know, the frightening female figure, and, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. And so both of your books um, engage with uh, this trend in recent scholarship to, to look at animals, right? And some, there's a lot of talk about uh, animal studies as a new, you know, maybe not so new anymore, uh, field of research. Uh can you both say a little bit about why you personally are interested in studying animals and explain, maybe for a general audience, why animals have become such a prominent site for philosophical or ethical reflection in the last one or two decades, maybe three decades? Do you want to go first on me? I mean, I was kind of a by accident ending up, especially having to contextualize or kind of a was, well, allowed to contextualize my stuff in animal studies um, but it was good because I started to think about again the project slightly differently from a non-media theoretical or not only media theoretical point of view for me um, animal studies let's think that first was a way to articulate philosophical points as well um, obviously it's concretely about animals and there's a certain ethical point about that which we could talk about later and which relates to contemporary culture and nature. Um, but um, for me, it was a philosophical point as well. Basically, how to not get rid of language, language focus, and our understanding of animals, nature, and so forth, through language, language speaking, this kind of mode of representation or kind of visibility that comes from, that comes from a very anthropocentric point of view of does the animal speak? And obviously, that's been a huge point, and, you know, Derrida and others are really good in elaborating that. But what I was interested in was the material intensity of animals as embodied in the world being, um, 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 you know, forms of life. Um, obviously, there's a huge, even if animal studies has been around as a kind of a, dis, a kind of a distinct field, okay, for in the well, and humanities sense, for what some some um, decades perhaps now, and especially now the past would we say 10-15 years been really a key theme uh, I think if you look at 20th century philosophy it's all about animals it's all about it's funny thing and, and funny enough insects the tick is one of the most you know key reference points for 20th century philosophy from Martin Heidegger's extensive elaborations and he was a big fan of Jakob von Uxko's work extensive elaborations of, of the you know 
how the animal is in the world, how displayed the design, the modes of temporality that he read from von Uxkull's reading of the tick to um, Jules Deleuze and Felix Quattari's work on the tick as, as a mode of affective in the world being connecting it to Spinoza and ethology, you know, and then Giorgio Agamben um, picking up a kind of slightly more biopolitical context for the tick. Um, you could read 20th century and modern philosophy through animals. So it's kind of t- overturning also that, which is kind of refreshing to me. And, and obviously in feminist thought, which is really important for me, that's been a huge impetus, you know, to um, try to come up with different conceptualizations of the body that is not um, reducible to the very male centered view of the human body as center of the world, all that stuff we know, but a radically that sense non-human body can has as has it's been um, um, in a way captured or kind of elaborated in feminism. I'm thinking about Rosie Pridotzi's work, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Gross's work, uh, partly which all of them stem from very strongly from Deleuze and Quattari, but also from psychoanalysis, but overturning that into, a, again, a radical feminist point of view about materiality, and again, going different way than, than lang- language focus. Um, so that's, that's something in terms of animal studies that I was able to, in a way, reflect my stuff upon. Um, how about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that I would agree with everything you said. I, I mean, there's this question, so why... Why animal studies now, or why animal studies in the past yeah. ten or fifteen years? And um, I'm not sure I have an answer for that, but I have some like speculations. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that you can disentangle it from the ethical questions that have been raised about mm-hmm. the way that animals are being treated by humans these days. Um, if you look at the field of animal studies as a whole, you can read in it an, a, enorm- a tremendous amount of of concern reaching back. By, you know, you could go back to the mid-1970s, uh, emergence of the modern animal rights movement. You could go back to the mid-19th century, emergence of the modern humane movement. But I think in particular, there's, you know, and so the, so I think there is that ethical impetus that's behind much of what goes under the rubric of animal studies. It doesn't mean all of it and uh, by any stretch. But uh, and and when you look at that, I think there are there are real you know material changes that have happened, material and economic changes that have happened in terms of the place that the relationships between animals and humans. There's and I won't list all the factors, but they would include things like urbanization, right, uh, as well as the intensification of, of animal agriculture. Mm. Right? These are major factors that have dramatically transformed our relationship to animals. Mm. Um, and so I think it's reasonable that people are grappling with that in a variety of different fields. There's also the environmental side of things, which I've also looked at uh, more, more closely. So I think that that's real. But then, you know, these, as you said, you look at the history of 20th century philosophy, you find animals coming up over and over again as part of these projects, which I think are often about demarcating the human, right? Mm-hmm. There, There's some effort to mm-hmm. situate humans within a broader class called animals, within a broader class called life. Mm-hmm. And those are extremely contested and extremely complicated mm-hmm. um, uh, dichotomies or, or border markings, mm, mm. and uh, what, you know. So, so I think. So I think for me, there's like the real ethical challenges that we face today. There's the long history of of understanding what it is to be human, which mm. inevitably raises the question of the animal and of life as a whole. Um, and then for me, also the reason that I find it particularly 
fun, interesting, exciting to work on this material is that there's a lot of methodological challenges that arise, right? There's just the, you know, in terms of craftsmanship of producing, for instance, a, a piece of historical scholarship that is attentive at the same time to the way that your historical actors are producing boundaries between humans and other kinds of animals. Right? That's one challenge, unpacking that. And the other challenge is, well, let's say you take seriously like a non-anthropocentric charge, right? You want to do some kind of scholarship which is open to non-human forms of being. How do you get at that, right? How do you write in as a human, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But intensely interested in stepping outside of that or building an assemblage beyond yeah. that, <laughs> right? That um, then how do you do that? And and as a historian, for me, that oftentimes comes down to really concrete questions like where do I find the sources? Yeah, yeah. Right. And to me, that's an, a tremendous challenge. It links up with things that people are doing in other areas as well. I mean, uh, people trying to think about new materialisms, posthumanisms, and also people working in subaltern studies. There's, there's a whole world of of people trying to write histories in new ways. And I think animals manage to sort of collect a few of those different concerns in one place, one fairly evocative place. Exactly, and at the same time, animal studies is a good field because it really isn't only about animals. This sounds slightly banal, but it's a you know it's a basic realization. Animal studies is a good way to talk about technology. It's a good way to talk about the articulation of the human animal as a kind of constitutive theme of twentieth century or kind of a modernity as well. It's a good way to talk about urbanization and and ethical. Ethical questions are now around, you know, um, the mass extinction of animals, obviously, but it's also a good way to tap into biopolitics that you mentioned as well, which I can see again clearly in your book, and as a kind of empirical mapping of certain biopolitical themes of the 20th century having to do with animals. I was thinking about that, you know, mm, you work at Max Planck, and you know, the place for certain kind of um, uh, history of science having to do with laboratories as well, right? And uh, and 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 I was mentioning really briefly the 19th century work of mapping um, in very concrete laboratorial settings and then you can extend the 20th century from schools as well of, of you know you, um, as as scientific formation to um, gather knowledge about the world and it's kind of an institutional um, um, in a way formalization of that knowledge but what you're doing already is is the whole what intrigues me are the techniques of, of radio tagging and what they allow is basically an extension of the laboratory into the wild, again in quotation marks, you know, which would be interesting if, as some people do, start reading a political economy of contemporary culture from laboratories and looking at, of, you know, certain formalization of, of human beings, the world might lead into um, um, motion studies and their relation to labor and the management of labor and all those themes. But if you look at, but if you think about the extension of the laboratory to the world and nature, and that as a process becoming so crucial for biopolitics, is the generalization of that laboratory in the world and its kind of instrumentalization. Mm-hmm. Instrumentalization is a generalization because we need to do meticulous work and archival work. But basically, it's about that, isn't it? And I can, I could see, I could. See, this is the kind of what I'm really interested in: is double bind empirical research, um, but also of how to think um, certain, even political philosophy themes through that. Again, biopolitics. Mm-hmm. I think basically of a biopolitical discourse 
um, and and more recent Marxist discourse also needs a lot of more empirical stuff to back up how they think about modes of production, but also modes of tapping into um, animal energies. There's a lot of good work in that, but you know this this fits in nicely. And just maybe just to expand upon, but also step back for a minute. So you both have mentioned biopolitics. It's this thing that mm. one hears a lot in academic context, and um, I think you hear it used in a lot of different ways. Um, it's widely you know, traced back to Michel Foucault, and it's accounts of a new way that sort of life itself became an object of knowledge in the 18th and 19th century. Um, when I think of um, what I've seen of Foucault's work, I don't remember him talking about animals. Um, I don't, but I wonder if... Um, if both of you maybe starting with Etienne, um, if you could just briefly say what you have in mind when you when you talk about something being biopolitical or what biopolitics means for you, and what does it mean uh, to bring animals into an account of the biopolitical? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, I'm not going to say that Foucault never talks about animals in his account of politics because I know they're sheep. In the story, <laughs> his account of the pastoral. Yeah, um, but it's as a metaphor. It's very obviously as a metaphor, and uh, and so I think um, you know. So for me, when I when I use the term biopolitics, and and I would say I am really interested in in seeing what this term can do when we move it beyond the human. I see this exactly how you described it. It's just a matter of um, of states and experts taking life itself under rational management. Mm. I think your question was what changes in our understanding of biopolitics or what has to change if we start including animals uh, and not just humans. I think, first of all, you can't understand human biopolitics if you don't understand the biopolitics of, of non-human life because we dep- you know, human populations don't exist without non-human populations. Mm-hmm. Right? So to, to maintain a human population, you need to simultaneously be managing non-human populations in exactly the same way. Um, so I think just from a pure uh, standpoint of, you know, even from a strictly anthropocentric standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, you need to be talking about, about that. Um, I think it, there are interesting questions that get raised. You know, uh, a lot of writing about biopolitics has been really concerned with the production of human social categories sort of in response to biopolitical regimes. And it's not clear that we can speak about animal populations reforming themselves exactly in the same way as, as human populations do, because they're lacking things like a consciousness of what these larger, more abstract or institutional structures are. At the same time, I don't think that you can say that you know, and non-human populations are sort of passive clay to be molded by by the by human experts or by human states. I think, in fact, that there is often a very complicated kind of response that happens within non-human populations that are being managed. I think it's really interesting stories that haven't really been told yet. True, that's a good way of putting it. Um, basically, biopolitics as a obviously form of governing life, um, but governing life through produc- production of certain ways of living and in a very concrete way whereas you know as we know Foucault talking about more concrete about the politics they're kind of a strand from history of technology and science that extends to media archaeology as well is keen to talk about also laboratories uh, but also laboratories such as cinema 
and you know the laboratory of everyday life in which technologies which themselves are products products of those scientific discourses and practices are extending again the laboratory so again i'm kind of keen on the laboratory metaphor without being the expert on this but you know i like it because it points towards both political economy governing of life or mapping an epistemology of life but also production of certain ways of life and you know learning in a very simple way learning about what the body can do in order to be able to produce certain ways of bodies mm-hmm. that you know in, yeah. in no. whether it's open space or something yeah no I, I the laboratory point i think is a really crucial one mm. um and this question this um vision, I'll call it, of, of the laboratory extending beyond its four walls in, into the world. And it's something that I, I tried to write about a little bit in my book. You know, yes. some, of the, some of the wilderness activists in the 1960s were reacting exactly to the rhetoric of the laboratory. They didn't mm-hmm. want a place like Yellowstone National Park to become a laboratory mm-hmm. because they saw the laboratory as being in conflict with their vision of wilderness, of nature, of the American landscape, what have you. And the scientists who'd worked in did, in fact, embrace the language of the laboratory. They spoke about turning yellow, about how wonderful a laboratory, a place like Yellowstone was. Mm. In practice, did Yellowstone turn into a laboratory? Mm. No. <laughs> it depends on how you define laboratory. There's mm. a lot of things about Yellowstone that were not like a laboratory, no matter how hard mm. scientists tried to make it into one. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and not least of which was the fact that if you're in a laboratory, you can extract elements of the world that you want to study. You can make them into manageable laboratory objects or experimental systems. And they're separate from the thing that you are then claiming to be making a reference to, the thing out in the world. If you're in Yellowstone with a remnant population of grizzly bears, to mm. take an example, mm. And you are doing an experiment on that population in your laboratory. There is no outside world to which you will then apply your results. The work you're doing is always already enmeshed in a biopolitical project. Mm. Right? Um, you're working on the very material that you're making claims about. And so I think that there are some crucial differences when the laboratory becomes the world, when those become co- mm. coincident. Um, but I think it's a, yeah, it's a, an issue which ri- arises over and over again in, in Maya, in the, in the historical actors. Uh, mm. That I study, it's something that was constantly on their mind. Mm. Mm. So I think I think what both your comments um, there is a certain question, right, about uh, whether or not uh, the story of animals becoming technology or the world becoming laboratory um, is this some uncanny process that we should be afraid of, right? And I, you know, reading more so with Etienne's book. Either I couldn't tell whether there was ambivalence about the way that you explain the sort of uh, scientists going out and tagging all the animals and following them and their failures and their successes. I'm not sure whether you were ambivalent or you were kind of masking your own take on the perspective. Um, but you know, reading it, I couldn't quite tell if um, you know. I don't know to put it in it like everyday way. Like I couldn't tell if I should be creeped out by this. <laughs> you know, if we were dealing with some moment here of technological and framing of the whole planet. Um, because in the way you're talking about it now, biopolitics, okay, it's it's one of these words that's almost coined to be scary. You don't know what <laughs> yeah. it is, yeah. but you know, I know politics are bad. And so if, <laughs> if bios becomes political, then that's just one more thing to be frustrated over. Um, but it also seems particularly in this, say, 
this conversation now, it also seems like there's this moment here of um, a different way of understanding nature that's not, or understanding animals, that's not as this kind of, you know, primeval, transcendent thing that we discover, but actually this is part of a world that, that we're living in, right? And so um, I wonder if you guys could, you know, elaborate a little bit on whether or not, uh, you know, how do you think we should feel about this permeation of media and technology into the broader domains and what's the what are the perils and promises of this you know of this process yeah i i completely understand why you had the reaction you had to 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 the way i presented things in in the book in, in part because uh, i think how do i put this uh, well, if you ask me if I if I think that this is creep uh, if this is creepy if I'm creeped out by this, what I would say is actually the technology and the media are not what are creepy about this story. That there's actually nothing creepy about it. And in fact, if we look back at the history of human interactions with the natural world, they've always been mediated by technologies and media. Mm-hmm. Right? This is just the way things are, and there's mm-hmm. nothing particularly surprising or scary about it. To me, the scary part of biopolitics is the part that's about power. Not necessarily about politics. I think politics are fine. I mean, they're messy, but they're fine. We have to have, have it around. It's about power, and it's about access. Mm-hmm. So to me, like the story that I ended up with, what I, what I tried to end up with in, in the book, was not about the creeping infiltration of formerly pristine bits of nature or freedom or autonomy or meaning or what have you by some kind of rigid, uh, soulless technology. Mm-hmm. This was not the story that I tried to tell. The story that I tried to tell was one in which those technologies, which have lots of possibilities for both good and bad, for opening things up and closing things down, mm-hmm. ended up getting allied you know, with a particular professional expert and state-supported approach to managing wild animals and wild places. So to try to put that again maybe more clearly, the question is not about whether technology and media are uh, demystifying our world, but whether certain structures of power are making it more difficult for us, all of us, to have healthy, creative, exciting, interesting, and open relationships with the world. And, and, and so, you know, at the end of the book I say... I suggest that there's this moment in the 90s and, and, and since where, uh, where there's a kind of opening up, where scientists' work is under new kinds of scrutiny, legal, uh, otherwise, uh, where scientists are reaching out and where non-scientists are reaching into the scientific process, and so it's opening up in some ways. And I think that's true, I think that has happened, but at the same time I, think, I still think that these technologies are often allied to a division between experts and lay people, between those with power and those without. And, and that that's what we should be worried about, if anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good, because that el- elaborates the political economy mm-hmm. of, of these assemblages of, of technology and animals, and that's probably the key thing that we need to think about. Again, I'm also in a kind of similar camp that thinking that, you know, it was all along mediatic or technological in some way, the way we narrativize or whether we technologize um, 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 wildlife and animals and, and well, humans as well. 
So that's my kind of background in German media theory in that sense, you know. It's all technological, or at least that's the a priori through which we need to... I'm thinking about this anyway. Which leads into the question of, okay, um, we've got a realization that there is there are processes of, of very intensive exploitation of resources in a very concrete way, as we know. This is not news. It's, again, Marxist and environmentalist theme exploitation of resources from, from non-organic to organic matter, um, which is where Felix Guattari's work is always, to me, really inspiring, think, thinking these various ecologies, in, mul in multiple ecologies, exploitation of the natural ecology, but exploitation of, of the psy psychic um, and social ecologies as well, and obviously he talks about what he calls integrated world capitalism, etc etc again pushing towards not perhaps you know not any idolized version of nature or animals when they're happily roaming around which is kind of interesting yeah and, and or but actually of how to think within imminently within that situation new kinds of ethico aesthetic practices as Guasari would call to it. What me, interests me is, is well, more recently, after Insect Media, I've been writing about waste and electronic waste, which is good, um, different but related way of seeing the biopolitics of life or biopolitics of death as well. A concrete way of um, understanding certain political economic processes having to do with technology from this design and production of technologies on a global level and their kind of after effects in terms of enormous piles of electronic waste and, and various chemicals and so forth that are affecting both um, the soil but also you know um, um, human bodies mostly in uh, developing countries where they're dismantling the stuff. So it's a matter of trying to articulate well basically I'm all about the eco-crisis I mean I'm <laughs> I think that's one of the most urgent things I mean I'm increasingly of the opinion when I'm teaching students and so forth that it would be almost unethical not to talk about a um, the crisis about well, capitalism as the production of a crisis and the other one that's related ecological crisis in pretty much everything you do whether you do a literature analysis or whether you're doing media or whether you do something else it doesn't have to be direct, but it needs to be there, because we're really, that's in a way, that is the horizon that we're living in, and that's in a way the ethical horizon that we need to be articulating theory in, um, you know, 20th century um, after a lot of the ethical philosophy of 20th century took a certain standpoint after Second World War and Holocaust, obviously, and, you know, um, the certain ethical framework Adorno's and others was talking about of how to, you know, impossible to write poetry after Auschwitz and so forth. We're dealing with this and mass extinction and of, of another sort as well. And that's perhaps, in a way, if that sounds a bit too, you know, that sounds a bit too grand or sublime now, you know, it's a kind of a statement, but I think that's a horizon that we need to be thinking about, whether we think about animals, whether we think about technology and, you know, and philosophy as well. And that's, for me, personally, the kind of project that I'm somehow trying to work with. Not the only one, but it's a key one. Well, um... Thank you. That sounds like a, a slightly depressing place, but I think also uh, it was interesting. I mean, you also you leave with this perspective that media studies opening onto animal studies mm. probably, you know, for the both of you would also be opening onto environmental studies. Mm. Um, and somehow, again, the environment is not 
not simply not simply never was, but certainly is not today a, a something that can simply be preserved, but actually is somehow caught up in media and technology in a way. It wasn't, uh, I don't know if it was before, but in any case needs to be grappled with, historically and theoretically now. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I would add is that, when, just going back to the earlier, earlier question about animal studies and media studies, I mean, when I think about animal studies, I think it is at the moment continues to be a very productive juncture um, for for working through some some issues that a lot of us are concerned about. But I don't think it's a stable juncture. I don't think it is that the category of the animal is a transcendent category that will occupy us for for forever. Hard, far from it. And in fact, you know. The, there are other questions that spill out from the animal, and one of them is the environmental, one of them is questions of life, others are questions of biopolitics that spill out in lots of different directions. And to me, oftentimes moving in those directions from animal studies works, but to, to stay in a sort yeah. of animal mm-hmm. um, studies cage, I think, would not be a successful approach. That's mm-hmm. a good point. I think you've got a pragmatist point there mm-hmm. of... of mm-hmm. Not the non-theoretical pragmatism, but theoretical pragmatism and also, you know, methodological pragmatism. Animal studies might be a good platform for us to extend, but we don't have to worry about it even if we don't use the animal term anymore later. Media is completely the same. Um, and in terms of uh, media studies might be a good platform to think about the interconnections between art, science and technology. But... Um, there's there's no good reason why we should stick to that when we kind of discover that it's not useful anymore. Then we might need to find it, something else, and you know, and that's why I think media studies folks should be a lot of media studies. That to me is media studies work, and and research is being done outside media studies. Historians of technology like Etienne and and so forth. It is that's that's the expansion expansionist form of media studies that is its best when it really goes to outside media studies departments and people who got a historian's background, for example, start doing themes that we really need to read. Hmm. Well, thank you both for speaking with us. Um, just to remind our listeners out there on the internet, I've been speaking with Etienne Benson, who is author of the book Wired Wilderness. Technologies of Tracing and the Making of Modern Wildlife, which is available from Johns Hopkins University Press. And we've also been speaking with UC Parika, who is the author of Insect Media and Archaeology of Animals and Technologies. And that book is available from the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you again for being here and uh, for telling us about your work. Thank you. Thank you.